0: Good morning, everybody. That's good. Well, you all look dressed and in your right minds, which is good. Uh, Sometimes you only get one of two of those, I've discovered. I don't know about you, but my family cares deeply about the clothes I wear. More than once, I have been, uh, there's been the suggestion that I go try again. I remember one time walking out, we're about to leave, and uh, one of my daughters sees me walk in and she says, Oh, no, Daddy, no, no. She just shook her head, no. So some of us care a lot about what we look like, some, particularly sometimes men. Uh, don't care that much about what we look like, but what we look like, what, we're, what we wear often reflects us. And because that's so, it even because that that is true. Sometimes those that we have family or friends or whatever, we feel like they feel like what we wear reflects them, which is why there's the suggestion to change. So, what does it mean when you go to the dressing room at the clothing store? And if you're being assisted by some employee there, you walk out and they look at what you're wearing and they say, oh, that is you. <laughs> it means that they want to make a sale, right? Well, there's a book uh, called The Lost, Lost in the Cosmos by the late Walter Percy. It's a kind of a humorous book, it's self-help books, humorous look. He, uh, he talks about what it means when the salesperson says that. It's you. And he says there are actually six stages of this process. And he says it's this. Number one, there's a style worn by a person with a certain authority that catches your eye. It seems a bit ridiculous, but... Two, other people start wearing it. Three, you go to the store and you try it on and the salesperson says, oh, it's you. Four, you buy it and wear it and for a while... It is you, and you are it. Five, slowly this new look loses its zing, and the new style becomes common and boring. And finally, six, the new look becomes slightly embarrassing, and again, a new you needs to be found. I like that because there is an element of truth in Percy's wit. We tend to see ourselves as represented by The externals, our clothes, our cars, our homes, our education, our spouse. And often, against our best efforts, we tend to pigeonhole other people in the same way. We tend to evaluate them based on their car, their clothes, their house, their spouse, everything else. Even though we know we shouldn't, we do, don't we? We look at the outside, but God looks at the heart. Even the prophet Samuel, remember back in 1 Samuel when he went to anoint one of Jesse's sons. Samuel himself fell for this. And God said, do not consider his height or his appearance, for I have rejected him. Uh, the Lord looks at the heart, but man looks at the outward appearance. So this doesn't mean we don't need to care anything about fashion. Um, but what it does mean is we need to really ask ourselves, what, who are we? And if we lose the clothes, or we lose the house, or the spouse, or the job, or whatever, who are we? Has our identity changed? Think about for a second what makes who you are. What defines you as a person? Well, it's sort of unfair to ask that question here in church, because, you know, you know the right answer. But let's pretend it's Wednesday and not Sunday. Let's pretend you're walking down the mall, instead of sitting in Sunday school class? Who are you? Well, let's turn, if you would, to the book of Colossians, chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2. We are in a series in which we're looking at a single message from each book of the Bible. We are in Paul's epistles. Paul wrote a number of epistles, most of the New Testament, Uh, finds its origin out of the quill of the Apostle Paul. And we've talked before about uh, Paul's journeys, Paul's books. You remember on his first missionary journey, he wrote one book, Galatians. On his second missionary journey, he wrote two books, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. On his third missionary journey, he wrote three books. uh, They are Romans, 1st Corinthians, and 2nd Corinthians. And then in his Uh, first Roman imprisonment, he wrote four books, so one, two, three, four, all down the line. And in the first Roman imprisonment is when he wrote Colossians. Colossians is one of the books that we call the prison epistles. Prison is sort of a a misnomer. Uh, He was incarcerated under house arrest. It's hardly a prison, at least the first time around. But he wrote the book of Colossians to a group of Christians in the city of Colossae. Some say, primarily based off of uh, chapter 2, notice it says in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who were at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. Based on that verse, some people say, well, Paul never went to Colossae. And I guess that's possible. I mean, he never says he went there. But if you look at the journey, if you look at the route of his third missionary journey, he walked right by Colossae, went right down through the valley. And so if he didn't go there, it would have been pretty unusual, because his journey was to like visit churches and strengthen churches. So maybe he didn't, but he definitely walked right by it if he didn't uh, go there. And uh, I think the verse not necessarily requires that he didn't go there, but just simply for those who were at Colossae and Laodicea, and for any others who have never met me. Doesn't mean that he didn't go. Maybe he did. I think he did. But uh, anyway, we're in Colossians chapter 2, and the first chapter, which we obviously aren't going to spend a lot of time in at all, um, basically does its work in which the Apostle Paul tells every person to desire maturity in their walk with, with Jesus Christ because it's only there that we find wisdom it's only there that we find uh the the unchanging wisdom that keeps us from being deceived in fact all the way up through verse 7 of chapter 2 he hammers this home with those wonderful verses uh, beginning in 6 and 7. i don't know have any of you ever been involved with the the navigators they have a a group a series of of uh, bible studies that are wonderful in grounding you in the truth but they're called the Colossians 2 7, Colossians 2 7 uh, series. And it's based off Colossians 2 7, which says, uh, starting in verse 6, actually, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. The thought there is, as Dr. Toussaint told us for many years, many times, that the method of justification is always the method of sanctification. You came to Christ by grace through faith. Now you live in Christ by grace through faith. And the verses that follow, which are what we're going to look at, is Paul telling us how in the world do we do that? How do we live by grace through faith? If we're rooted and built up in Jesus Him, Jesus Christ, how do we live in Him and have that kind of faith. Well, let's continue in verse 8 as Paul begins to get into the wisdom that we need for daily life. Verse 8, he writes, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form last week i was uh, doing my routine in the morning and emptied one box of cereal i think the day before and so was opening my new box of cereal and this was a different box of cereal than i usually uh, use so i open it up and literally you know sometimes those things are a challenge just to get open you got to be careful or cereal goes everywhere you know what I mean? First of all, you try to pull it, and it, it won't open. But anyway, I've just gone to cutting. Just cut it open as opposed to trying to pull it, and cereal flies everywhere. So anyway, I finally get it open, and I kid you not, I opened it, and I looked, and there was nothing there, and I actually had to look down inside. The thing was one-third full and two-thirds empty. I mean, a cereal box this tall, and it had like this much cereal in it. I just laughed out loud. And I thought of this verse. <laughs> the emptiness of this world. The emptiness of this world. The world promises one thing, but it delivers something else. It's like what we experience when we eat potato chips, as well. You know, but you open a bag of potato chips, and it's like there's three potato chips in there. Of course, they do it to to shield it and pad it and everything, but you could still do that if you put a few more chips in there. But anyway, it's just like, you never really know what's in there until you get it open, until you've bought it. And once you bought it, you realize, ah, it's empty. Same as with the philosophy of the world. Paul tells us, don't, don't, let, people, don't let the world take you captive through philosophy. Philosophy. And there's nothing wrong with philosophy per se, the love of wisdom, but philosophy according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles, the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. It's not, he's not saying all philosophy is bad. He's not saying all tradition is bad, but rather when it is opposed to Christ, then it's bad, if there is something that goes against Christ. We're basically talking about a worldview. A worldview. A worldview is how we view the world. And there are bunches of different worldviews. You know, sometimes we like to call it politics, uh, but it's really worldviews. How you view the world is how you are going to demand that the world operates. And when you've got different philosophies of how the world ought to operate, then you're going to lock horns with people. There's, uh, there's, there's the pantheist, we don't call them pantheists today because that sounds sort of weird. We call them New Agers. Uh, and even that's a little dated, isn't it? You don't hear a whole lot about the New Age movement, but it's the idea of Buddhism. or uh, uh, it, It's popular also in, uh, what's another one? Star Wars. That's pantheism. It's the idea of just everything is God. The tree is God. The, this lectern is God. I am God. You're God. This is why we hug trees. The tree's God. Go give God a hug. Pantheism. Everything is God. Which is, and it's sort of subtle, because like Romans 1 says, you can see undeniable supernaturalness in this world. The, the challenge is the pantheist only looks at the world, and it stops there. Oh, here's the world. It's supernatural. The world's God. But... Um, We, deists, will actually take it a step beyond that and say the world is the way it is because God created it that way. Of course, an atheist would totally object to that, saying that there is no God. I remember after 9-11, there was an interview done. I'm trying to remember who actually did the interview, but it was a series, it was a documentary called Faith and Doubt at Ground Zero, I think was the name of it. Fascinating. And I'm sure it's on YouTube or whatever, but if you want to watch worldviews in action, worldviews dealing with uh, the tragedy of 9-11, watch that interview called Faith and Doubt at Ground Zero. And one of them was an atheist. In fact, he even said, I'm an atheist, and 9-11 has destroyed my faith. And he says that because he says, uh, my hope was in humanity. And clearly, humanity is not the answer. I thought that was very insightful and very honest. But we are deists, that is, we are those who understand that there is a God. Uh, not, not just plain deist in the sense of uh, God's passive, but deist in the sense of, maybe I should say we're theists. Maybe that's better, not deists, theists. Sorry, boy. Can we erase that on the tape? Um, a deist is sort of like the, uh, the mindset of Jefferson or, or Ben Franklin, that God created the world and just sort of set it off in motion, and it's doing its own thing, and he's wringing his hands like, oh, golly, look what I did. But a theist takes the deist to another level, and that not only did God create the world, but he is very involved in it, and he is sovereign over it. When Paul says... That uh, we need to not be taken captive through philosophy and empty deception, but rather, the, thing, but rather uh, or the traditions of men rather than according to Christ. Why in the world would we need to contrast all of this with Christ? Because he tells us in verse 9, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus is God. That's why. Jesus is God. In fact, we even have revealed here something that would be new to most people, and that is that when we read Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and we read about God creating the world, we understand from a New Testament perspective that God did that through the Son, that Jesus was the one through whom God created the world. And notice verse 9 says not only that, um, that it says, for in him all the, deity, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That is a deity somehow, all the fullness of deity. Now, try to wrap your arms around that. We can't, but just imagine that you could. All the fullness of who God is in a person. You know what's even more amazing? That all happened even at the moment of conception all the fullness of deity in Mary's womb in that first little moment that is amazing well keep your finger here in chapter 2 and flip back to chapter 1 you may have to turn a page or not but look back at chapter 1 verse 15 it's not the first time paul has mentioned this though he develops it fuller in chapter 2 but look at chapter 1 verse 15 it says he is the image The Greek word there is icon. He is the image of the invisible God. What a beautiful, beautiful thought. Think about that. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. The humility of Jesus was astounding, wasn't it? I mean, this was all true of him when he walked the earth those 30-plus uh, years. And he never you know, told the disciples, you know, by the way, I created all this. <laughs> See that over there? That was fun. That mountain, that was fun. I remember that. He didn't do it. So humble. So humble. So humble that he would even consent to die on a cross because of the will of the Father. Now, talk about a worldview. The Son of God created the world. All things are created by Him, and notice Paul says in verse 16, the end of 16, they were created for Him. So our worldview, the way that we view the world, is that it was created by a God, not just a God, but very specifically, the Son of God, and it was not just created by Him, but it's for Him. Everything that that Christ created, He created for Him. And that includes us. Who we are has more to do with the God who made us and what he made us for than it does with any opinion of humanity. Philosophy will tell you that you are the one that decides your destiny. The word of God tells us, know that we have all been created by Christ and for Christ. So there's two principles that we're going to glean from the text. There's a lot here, but we're only going to lift two, just to keep it simple and to keep it memorable. One's about Christ. One's about us. The first one is about Christ, and it's very simple, but the text tells it to us. Here's the principle. Christ is completely God. And we get that from chapter 2, verse 9. In Him all the fullness of deity, dwells in bodily form. And notice that's present tense. It still dwells in bodily form. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father in his resurrected body. The Son of God dwells in bodily form, and he will dwell in bodily form forever. Amazing. Jesus Christ is completely God, completely God, and he's also man. In the year A.D. 451, so this is about 400 years after the time Paul wrote this, just north of Colossae, in uh, what is near basically today what is Istanbul, the Council of Chalcedon came together with a group of bishops to deal with the problem. The problem they were trying to deal with was how the dual nature of Christ. How could Christ be fully God? How could Christ be fully man? Of course, these councils always came together to try to to swat down heresies, or basically to come up with a creed that would help summarize, sort of synthesize, and make simple uh, doctrines that are hard, that are hardly simple. And one of these is, you know, the dual nature of Christ. I mean, that's hard to wrap your arms around. Anyway, they came together, and in an effort to summarize what Scripture teaches, they wrote what, what's called the, the, the Chalcedon Creed, or the Creed at Chalcedon. And it says in part, I won't read the whole thing, but it says in part this quote, He is of the same reality as God as far as his deity is concerned, and of the same reality as we are ourselves as far as his humanness is concerned. Thus, like us in all respects, sin only accepted. They continue. Without confusing the two natures, without transmuting one nature into another, without dividing them into two separate categories, without contrasting them according to area or function, the distinctiveness of each nature is not nullified by the union. Instead, the properties of each nature are conserved, and both natures concur in one person. They are not divided or cut in two, but are together the one and only begotten Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ." We can't comprehend the depth of the doctrine of the dual nature of Christ. But although we can't understand it, we can believe it. Fully God, fully man. Christ is completely God. And stemming from the truth of who Christ is, we get the second principle that gives us insight about ourselves. Because Christ is truly God, look at verse 10. Here's a natural outworking of that about us. Paul writes, And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Notice all the in-hims throughout this chapter. Verse 6, in him. Verse 7 has in him. Verse 9, 10, and 11, and 12 have in him. 12 has it twice, well, with him. Verse 13, with him. Verse 15, through him. This is exalting Jesus. And it is pointing to Jesus as the one who is the ultimate one worthy of our worship and our devotion. He noticed it says, in him you have been made complete. The word here for complete comes from the same word in the previous verse that describes Christ's fullness. I wish there'd been a way to translate it, at least here in the New American Standard, that reflects that connection. We don't get it, at least in this English version, but in the Greek it's very clear. In verse 9 it says that the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That word for fullness is the same root word in verse 10 as you have been made complete or full. In fact, I wonder, yes, if you look in the margin, at least New American Standard margin for the word complete, it literally says full. There, just as Jesus is fully God, so you have been made full in Jesus. What does that mean? Well, we can sort of understand from a limited perspective what it means that Jesus is fully God, but what does it mean that we have been made complete? Well, let's just say the principle first of all, and then we'll, we'll sort of unpack it. The first principle is Christ is completely God. The second principle regarding us is that Christ has made you Complete in Him. Christ is completely God, and Christ has made you complete in Him. Meaning, to the extent that Christ is God, and what extent is that? Totally. So, you are complete in Christ. Meaning, you lack nothing. You are accepted in the sight of God. There is nothing lacking when God looks at you. If there's anything lacking when God looks at you as a Christian, then there's something lacking in the deity of Jesus. That's what he's saying. That should elevate your understanding of God's acceptance of you. And it's right there in the text. A couple months ago, I had a dear woman uh, write me. She was struggling with years and years of just questioning God about her infertility. She and her husband couldn't have kids. They are not in a position to adopt. And yet she basically says she sees babies everywhere, and she's just depressed over it and even angry at the Lord. In fact, I think she told me that, you know, I see people who aren't living for the Lord with a house full of kids. You know, and here I am doing my best to walk with Christ, and we're barren. And so, uh, anyway, I um, rather than just try to think, Think of some response or some verse to pass back at her. I knew of a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, who uh, had struggled with this as well, and said, well, "What would you counsel?" And she said, um, recommended to to this lady to um, to go to a website called Hannah's Prayer. Hannah's Prayer. In fact, if any of you know of anyone who is struggling with a similar circumstance look up the website Hannah's Prayer. It's a community. It's an online community of women that encourage women who are dealing with this. Anyway, so I did that, and and there was a couple of books as well. A few weeks ago, she wrote me back, and I want to read part of what she wrote. She said this, I joined the Hannah's Prayer community. I've been praying once a week with a group of ladies who encourage me in my faith. They are such a blessing. And yesterday, I was able to attend a baby shower for a coworker without struggling with envy or anger. I genuinely feel peace and, happiness for, I felt peace and happiness for this woman. The Lord has brought healing in this area of my life. It was an issue that I had put on the back burner thinking I didn't need to deal with it or didn't want to deal with it, but that was not healthy and the Lord knew it. Now, listen to this last line. She says, now I know that I am complete in him with or without children. This is a wonderful application of the principle that Paul is teaching here in Colossians chapter 2. You are complete in Christ. Do you have to be married to be complete in Christ? No. Do you have to be have children? No. Do you have to Fill in the blank with whatever it is that you feel like has to be in your life before you're complete. Paul is saying, if you're in Christ, you are, you are complete. You are complete. And now, that doesn't mean that there's not loneliness, that there's not struggle, that there's not fear or confusion at times. It just means that, that Christ has allowed you to be complete in him, that he has equipped you to be wherever you are in the season of life where you are right now, to serve him faithfully and effectively, and to learn whatever he would have you learn in this context. But also, one great thing is that even in Colossians and the whole tenor of the New Testament is that you don't have to do it alone. The body of Christ is there to walk through it with you, just like this Hannah's prayer group uh, was for this dear woman. She wouldn't have come to this probably wouldn't have come to this conclusion if it hadn't been other ladies gathering around her and pouring into her the wisdom of the word of God. The world's philosophy will tell you you are not complete. You are empty. In fact, we can help you, they'll say. Here is what you need to do. Now, we do need food, obviously. We do need clothing, all that, everything that marketing tells us. But we, we are not identified by it. We walk out of the dressing room and the dressing the salesperson says, That's you. Well, let's take their metaphor for all it is. You're telling me I look nice, thank you. But this is not me. I am completing Christ. So try that next time that the the person says that when you walk out, oh that's you. So well, thank you, but I'm completing Christ. See how that goes. But the thing is you don't a sports car doesn't complete you. A spouse doesn't complete you. Children, money, a 401k, whatever it is, doesn't complete you. You are complete in Christ. Not only completely uh, able to follow his will in this life, but, but also in this context very clearly in the sight of God. There is nothing that you need to do to be any more complete in his sight. J. Vernon McGee wrote, he said, There are only two kinds of religion in the world. You can list every ism, every cult, every religion under one category. They all say, do, do, do. Only Christianity says, done. Isn't that great? Christ has done it all. Well, look also what Christ has done for you. Verse 11. And in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. There's a lot of metaphors in there, aren't there? You've got circumcision, you've got being raised, you've got baptism. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff here. What in the world is he talking about? Circumcision, obviously, we know an Old Testament command was to happen for every baby boy on the eighth day, and it was basically a sign as an act of the parent, uh, of the, the, the faith of the parents, that this child is a part of the Abrahamic covenant. It was, it was even integrated into the law of Moses. The law required this as an outward sign of something that they anticipated that would be true of the child's heart as the child grew. It was symbolized of what was to happen in the heart. Baptism is the same thing, except here it's, not, uh, it's done with a believer, not necessarily with a child, though some denominations still do that. But ultimately, biblically, we're to baptize believers, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And it's, again, it's something outward, but it reflects something inward. So whenever the phrase in the New Testament is used, circumcision made without hands, it basically contrasts the work of God, which is mentioned here in verse 12, uh, through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, it contrasts the work of God with the work of people, or what Paul calls here the flesh. And by flesh, he doesn't mean skin, he means sin, or he means the uh, just the physical life that we live. So. Uh, Elsewhere, uh, when Paul wrote to the Romans, and remember this was written before Colossians, so Romans, would, Romans 6 talks about the fact that um, our old self was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be rendered powerless. And it's probably the same idea here, where he says that, um, uh, where was it here? The removal, Verse 11, the removal of the body of flesh. It's the idea that your, your body no longer is calling the shots. You've been, you have been removed from that. You have been now placed in the, do, the domain of Jesus that uh, you're no longer the, under the domain of sin. So when sin says, hey, why don't you do this? You can say, you know what? I'm no longer under your dominion. You can say all you want, but I don't have to obey you. And he illustrates this also with baptism. And uh, this isn't literal baptism in this verse any more than we're talking literal circumcision. It's a, it's, you could even say it's sort of like a baptism without hands. It's a baptism of identification, which is ultimately what baptism is. When you're baptized, literally baptized, you're, you are identifying with Jesus. That's what baptism means. Well, verse 13, it gets even better. Paul says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Paul is speaking of something that uh, the readers would have been familiar with, that you and I aren't familiar with, and that is when a Roman general, uh, uh, when a Roman prisoner, I should say, it was crucified, uh, they had the charge put over their head. This happened with Jesus, you remember? He had the charge put over his head, Jesus, King of the Jews. So his charge was treason, in an, and in a mocking way they put it up. The charge against him was nailed above his head, and what happened to the Lord, he basically said. Uh, happened to us because the charge written for us was God's law. We broke God's law, and it's, it would be almost as if we would have a, a sign over our head say, you know, you broke the law, you broke God's standard, and so you're justly condemned. But Paul is saying he took that out of the way. He said in verse 14, he canceled out the certificate of debt. We had a certificate of debt you had a certificate of debt against God because of the sin in your life. And it consisted of the decrees against you, which were hostile to you. And it says he has taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. So when Jesus died, he took your sign up on the cross with him. We're told, having nailed it to the cross, it was taken out of the way. And I love that phrase because... It reminds us that we had something in the way. To have something taken out of the way meant meant that it was in the way. Our sin was in the way of our relationship with God. And if you're ever going to share the gospel with somebody, that's a wonderful way to keep it really simple. It's just basically to say, you know, God's standard for heaven is himself. It's perfection. And I'm not perfect, and you're probably not perfect. And that the Bible calls that sin, and sin is between us and God. And if sin is the problem, then sin is what has to be removed so we can come to God. Jesus removed that sin when he died on the cross. In fact, he paid for it himself. And if you believe it, then you're forgiven. That's what the Bible teaches. Such a simple message, isn't it? Such a beautiful truth. When Jesus died, he hollered out the Greek word tetelestai, which means it is paid in full. The barrier is removed. So Christ has forever removed the barrier. Beautiful truth. But it's not that it's just been moved somewhere. It's not like, you know, this stool has just been moved over here to the edge of the of the platform. It says it has been removed. It's like taking that stool and, and putting it in the incinerator. It's gone. The barrier between you, and God is not, between you and God has not just been moved. It's been removed. It no longer exists. It gets, it gets even better. Look at verse 15. It says, When he had publicly disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him or maybe through it, meaning through the cross. It could, you could interpret it either way in context. But the idea here, rulers and authorities, uh, what is this referring to? It, it's probably referring to uh, the demonic realm. That when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he is, and notice that this takes us back to verse 10 where it says that he is the head over all rule and authority. That Jesus Christ is the ruler. And he has disarmed the sub-rulers, that is, and authorities. And it says that he made a public display of them. This is the idea that when a Roman general would conquer a nation, and he'd come back into Rome, there'd be a big parade. And you'd bring all the the loot that you'd gotten from, uh, from your victory, and you'd parade it through the town. And at the very back of the line would be the prisoners of war. Paul actually referred to himself and the other apostles as these, he says, we're kind of the back of the line. But here he uses it in a totally different way. He, ref, he, he refers to it as these demons made a public display of them. The idea is they've been disarmed, just like an enemy, and we got them in the back of the line. They are on the way to execution. The cross accomplished that for us. That The demons, the Rulers and authorities in our lives, uh, they no longer have any ammunition. They can fire blanks at us, and boy, those are convincing sometimes, aren't they? But they're empty. Um, I remember one time, when I was a little boy, I lived in San Antonio, and we had more scorpions down there, I think, than I've seen up here in 35 years. And so I got to kill lots of scorpions, And as a child, this is fun, especially after they sting you. You think, all right, you know, you've had your last laugh, scorpion. You're about to get it. And I won't tell you all the things I've done to scorpions, but some of them I'm not proud of. (laughs) But this one I can tell you. Uh, There was was a scorpion crawling across the floor one time, and I just looked over and I saw, well, there's a pair of scissors. So I thought, well, this will be easy. So I took the scissors and reached down, and, and uh, forced it, you know, locked it to where it couldn't move. I, I didn't, nothing was cut just yet. It was just there. And so it was wiggling, it was wiggling, and its tail was stinging everything it could possibly do, and I was just holding it. And finally I just went snip, and its tail just comes off. And of course now it's free, and it's running around, and its its stingerless tail is just hitting everything. And I just thought, you know what? That's, you got nothing now. You got absolutely nothing now. But it was still running around. Same idea. Same idea. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities. The demons are still at large. But they have no effect. No lasting effect of demands in our lives. We, have, we are not under their authority. We're under the authority of Christ. They can fire blanks. But they have been disarmed, verse 15 tells us. And this is important to remember when they like to bring up everything you've done wrong. When you have a a conscience that's oversensitive, you just remember uh, yeah, that was true of me, but it's not true of me anymore. I'm complete in Christ. And in context, this relates to the philosophies of the world. Remember, philosophies of the world is what Paul cautioned us against. Don't be taken captive through the philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Where do we get those principles of the world? From demons. And how do we know that? Because when you go all the way back to the very beginning, um, who, was, who was the one that basically started all this deception? It was Satan. And what did he tell the woman? He basically told the woman, you are not complete. You're not complete. There's something lacking in your life. And the best way to find completeness is to step outside of the will of God. I know God told you this, but he didn't tell you the whole story. Let me tell you the whole story. Here's what you need to do. Here's some fruit. It's good. You need fruit. You need food. Eat it. And you will have a great surprise coming. You will be like God. Well, that was a lie, wasn't it? But she fell for it, and we have fallen for it. And if we are not wise, according to Paul's words here in verse 8, see to it, no one takes you captive. It's the same lie that tells us you're empty. Your life is empty. And in order to fill it, you've got to fill it with the things of the world or with, to quote Paul, traditions of men, elementary principles of the world, that which is opposite Christ. Which is why Paul goes on immediately after that in verse 9 and 10 and says, No, all the fullness of deity dwells in Christ, and you are full. You are complete. You lack nothing. Don't listen to the lie of the evil one. They are powerless. They've been disarmed. Listen to the truth. You lack nothing. Now go serve Christ in the joy of the life he's given you. Even with all its challenges, you don't lack anything. He's given you all you need to do it. Well, we started late, so we're going to go late. Look at uh, chapter 3, if you would, and just read a few verses here. Chapter 3, it's an essential final uh, wrap up. It says, Therefore, notice it says, Therefore. In other words, everything we've just said plays into this. If, or maybe better, since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind. On the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Now pause there for a second. Put that in context and realize what he's saying. What are the things that are on the earth? The elementary principles of the world, everything that the world tells you, the lies of the rulers and principalities, etc., that tell you that you're empty. Paul says, no. Set your mind on things above. You are complete in Christ. Not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There you are again, linked with Jesus Christ. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So he's saying, look, you're complete now, and look what you've got to look forward to. Christ is coming from heaven, and and when he does, uh, his glory is going to be revealed, and it is going to all be worth it. I've had the privilege of traveling to most biblical sites in Turkey, including Colossae. And Colossae is actually only one of two sites the New Testament mentions that are in Turkey that hasn't been excavated. Um, and it's kind of neat to go up there. It's just, you know, a big hill of weeds. And you can look around, you can say, well, the mountains don't move. So, you know, when Paul walked through here, he saw that. When Everyone who lived here at Colossae and read this letter. It, it's sort of surreal. You know, I don't want to get all woo-woo on you, but... When you, when you go to biblical places and you actually open the text, you open I opened the Bible on the tell of Colossae to Colossians. And I thought the first time this book was written was right here. And they read these wonderful, deep truths of the Christian life. But what sort of struck me is uh, I'm standing on a hill of weeds. Colossae is gone. But The letter to the Colossians lives on. What a beautiful picture of what the very thing Paul is teaching here. If we put our hopes in the things of the world, you got an empty bag of potato chips. you got a a cereal box that's only one-third full. You're standing on a hill of weeds. But if you place your hope in Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God, you set your mind on things above, you realize you don't lack anything. You are complete in Him. Then you can take another step. You can go another day, and you can walk faithfully with Christ. Christ is completely God. Christ has made you complete in Him. So when the salesman tells you it's you, you say, thank you. I'm complete in Him. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for Paul's letter to the Christians at Colossae, because really it's his letter to us as well. We struggle with these same issues and desperately need the wisdom that Christ gives, rather than the empty philosophies and the lies of the world that ultimately just go back to the lie of Eden that says that God has not given us what we need. Thank you for reorienting our minds. And as Paul challenged us, help us, Lord, to set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And we pray in his name. Amen.